I've been very, very extremely blessed um, in my Bible studies regarding the subject that I want to present. Um, it's kind of a, uh, what I would call a paradigm-shifting truth. Um, you know, I've been a Christian now for 13 years, uh, an Adventist for 13 years. I was baptized in uh, 2001. And, um, you know, sometimes you think you know it all in the beginning. You, you know, you adhere to the points of belief and you get baptized. Uh, and you, you just wonder what's going to come after that. Uh, looking back on these 13 years, I can say that it's been a journey of continually discovering uh, what this book is all about. Uh, but in that journey, as I look back on my own 13 years of, of being an Adventist, I can pinpoint a couple of moments that I would call paradigm-shifting moments. Uh, what I mean by that is there's, there's kind of this awakening that you suddenly see a truth that you, you never saw it like that before. And that can be even very simply the gospel, um, the exchanged life, that my life, it's not about my works, it's about the works of Christ. Something so, what we could call fundamental in Christianity, can suddenly come on the surface like we had never seen it before. Um, and I'm sure that some of you sitting here this evening know exactly what I'm saying. You've been a Christian for a number of years, and suddenly you read something uh, maybe it's the account of Christ's death. Maybe, maybe it's the truth of the sanctuary. Maybe it's something else and you suddenly read it. And, and there's truth that emerges and you see something you never saw before. And it changes your whole way uh, of, of looking at God. Uh, your whole way of, of picturing who he is. And uh, it's one of these um, shaping truths that uh, is kind of at the very foundation of this series that I would like to present. Um, I entitled this series, Recapturing the Wonder of Adventism. Recapturing the Wonder of Adventism. And our first part this evening is entitled, um, God's Glory, or God's Story, rather. But we'll see that his story is about his glory. God's Story Hijacked. God's Story Hijacked. Um, and uh, before we go any further, I really feel that I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in our study of his word. So um, let's, let's bow our heads together and, and ask the Lord to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, it's such a great privilege to call you our Father. And uh, we do so because Jesus, your son, our brother, told us to approach you in that way. And uh, Lord, it's mind-boggling to think that the creator of the universe, the one that breathes and, and, and brings into existence stars and, and knows their name uh, is the same one that we call Father. Uh, Lord, we come to you this evening, um, and we want to ask for your Holy Spirit to speak to us, each one of us individually. Uh, Lord, as we open your word, may we not just encounter um, truth that we merely accept with our minds as a theory, but I pray that we may encounter truth that will shape us um, on the deepest level possible. And so I ask for your Holy Spirit to guide me in my words. I ask for every person in this room for an understanding heart uh, that we may perceive what you want to have us to see this evening. I pray that you will tailor make this message to each and every individual need in this room. Um, and I ask these things in your wonderful name, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, take your Bibles and turn to the first chapter in the first book, uh, Genesis chapter 1. This is where we're going to start our, our journey together. And uh, I really hope you have your Bible with you because this is going to be a bit of a Bible study. Um, and I'm going to really have to lay a foundation for where we are heading with this series. And in order to do that, I need to share a number of scriptures with you. So I hope you will be able to follow along in that. Um, if you want to take notes, do so. Um, and um, we're going to start in the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Um, again, our title for this evening, God's Story Hijacked. And um, I remember that before I was a Christian, um, I thought that the Bible was a book that dealt with history that was not relevant for me today. I thought that's something of the past. Uh, and yet when I started studying the Bible, I found out that the story of Scripture is extremely relevant for me living today. And uh, that the story of the Bible is really all about the story of God. I like to think of it this way, and this works in English. History is his story. Did you get that? 
history is his story. When you think about history, 6,000 years of history, it's all about God. It's his story that he is telling. Now, you might think, well, I remember in high school, in history classes, that we talked about this and that. And, and some of the things that I know about history, they really have little to do with God. Well, what we're going to find out this evening, that the atrocities of history and the dark sides of history and the dark chapters of history are really when man has attempted to hijack the story of God. Ultimately, history is his story. But when it is hijacked by man, then we get the atrocities that we can look back on in history. And uh, we're going to start here in the book of Genesis chapter 1. This is how the history begins. This is how his story begins. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, and uh, we're going to look at the creation of man in verse 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26 and 27, uh, God has been creating um, the world with all its um, beauties. And now on the sixth day, um, mankind is created. And God says in verse 26, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Mankind, according to scripture, the first thing that we learn about the human beings, the first created human beings, is that they were created in the image of God. Now, what what was the reason of them being created in the image of God? Turn with me in your Bibles now to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, and um, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 7. And this is like a, in a nutshell, the reason why you exist. Have you ever wondered, why, why am I actually here? Why was I born? Why do I live? What is the purpose of life? In one verse, we have it all summed up. And this is really the, 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 what we're going to look deeply at, what it means, this verse means for us. Um, We're made in the image of God, according to Genesis. But what is it all about? Isaiah 43 and verse 7. Look at what it says. This is God speaking, by the way. Isaiah is, is recording the very words of God. And God says, Isaiah 43, verse 7, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for, what does your Bible say? My glory. I formed him, yes, I have made him. What is the reason of our existence according to this simple verse? Why do we exist? To give glory to God, right? God says everyone, that means that no one is left out, by the way. Not 90%, not 95%, not 99%, not 99,9%. Everyone. Every single person that ever entered into this world as a human being is created for one purpose. And that purpose is to give glory to God. To give glory to God. Now, go back one chapter in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 42 and look at verse 8. We want to build on this. So we we found out in the book of Genesis that we are made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God means to reflect the glory of God, to give glory to God continually. That's the purpose of our existence. Now look at Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. And um, this is again God speaking. And when God speaks, we better listen. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will, what? Not give to another nor my praise to carved images. So God is not in the business of sharing his glory with you or with me. God created us in his image, and what that means is to reflect all glory back to God. All glory belongs to him, and God is not sharing that glory with anyone else. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking, well, that creates kind of a, 
egocentric picture of God. That kind of creates a picture of God that it's all about him and he wants worship and he wants glory and he wants all of me. Isn't this, you know, is that the kind of God we worship? You know, what I want us to see together, and this was really kind of a paradigm shift for my own experience when I came to see this from Scripture, is that every single page of the Bible is about the glory of God. I mean, it is simply all about him. But at the same time, the glory of God and it being all about him is the most beautiful truth in the entire universe. And we're going to kind of try to unpack that together. Why is it the most beautiful truth that all the glory is about him? Why is it the most beautiful thing that all my life must be given to him? And that I cannot retain any of that glory, but it must go to God. What's so beautiful about that? Because if anyone else, listen very carefully, if anyone else besides God would claim glory, it would be very ugly. I mean, we see that in the world, don't we? When people claim glory for themselves and worship for themselves and attention for themselves, it becomes sin. And in the, in the, in the middle of the word sin, you have I. It becomes pride. In the middle of the word pride, you have I. Self-focus is the most ugly thing in the universe. There's nothing that is more ugly than self-centeredness. Really think about it. What makes a marriage a hell? Self-centeredness. What makes this, what makes sport um, really ugly? Self-centeredness. What makes friendships, what, what, what really like makes it just, you know, no longer the beauty that it, it had ordained, that God ordained it to be? Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness lies at the very heart, at the very root of all the problems that we have in our world today. And I'm not trying to kind of like over, I'm not, to, I'm not trying to make an overstatement here to catch your attention. I actually really believe that at the center of every single problem that you have in your life right now, and every single problem that I have in my life right now, at the center of it is self. It's glory that we want. Now, now, now think about this for a moment. For anyone else than God to be self-centered, it is ugly. But for God to be self-centered, it's the most beautiful thing in the universe. Now, you see, how, how can that be? Because think about this. God knows who he is. God knows that he is the eternal one, that in him is all life. God knows that all goodness comes from him. God is, has the, the greatest self-awareness. If there's something that has, if, there, if there's some being that, that has self-awareness, awareness of who he is, it is God. God knows he is the best. And so in order for God to say, give me all the glory, God is saying, give yourself fully to me. He, calls, he says to us, you know, give me your heart, your mind, your soul, your life, everything, give it to me. God says that because he knows he's the best. And he knows that if you would say, well, give it rather to that person or, or that object or, or give it rather there, he knows that in doing so, he would give you less than the best. Are you kind of tracking with where I'm, where I'm going here? So for God to say, well, you know, don't give glory to me, give glory over there, he's giving you something less than the best. So God, in his knowledge about himself, must, must point to himself. Does that make sense? God must be self-centered. God must be self-centered because he's the best. He's the origin of life. He's the origin of all goodness. He is love in essence. And so when he says, worship me, give glory to me, in, in the end, it's not really about him. It's really because he knows he's the best and that you are receiving the best when you give him your glory. When you give him, when you reflect the glory of God, because really in ourselves, we have no glory. We're reflecting the glory. When we worship God, when we follow God, when we give him our heart, our mind, our soul, in it, we are tapping into the source of all love and the source of all goodness. Now, uh, we're going to try to kind of um, unpack this together as we go along here in this series, but... Um, 
It's kind of like, um, you know, um, if you're outside on a cloudy day and uh, you look up uh, in the sky and the clouds, sometimes they have shapes, you know, and maybe a friend will say to you, hey, look, um, I see, you know, I see, I see the, the form of an elephant in that cloud there. And, uh, and you might look and say, well, I don't, I don't see anything. And then suddenly you look a little more and you look a little more and suddenly you see it. And, you know, when you see a shape of, let's say, an animal in the clouds, once you see it and then you look away and you look again, you continue to see it, right? Because then you kind of your, your mind has adjusted to it. It's like a shift and, and suddenly you cannot not see it. And this is kind of the way it works in the Bible, too. When you read the Bible, you know, you might read it as a story that is about David, about Goliath, a story that is about um, Saul, a story that is about Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah, a story about Daniel and a story about uh, the disciples, you know, James and Peter, a story about Paul. But then suddenly, if you carefully read the Bible, you'll find out that these people that are in this story are really only background people, that ultimately the story is about God. And when you start seeing that the story about, is about God and you start reading it that way, it's kind of like the, 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 the cloud thing. Once you see it, you cannot not see it. And once you see the glory of God in Scripture, you cannot not see it. It's like any story you read, well, it's about God. Any parable, any prophecy, any psalm, any revelation, any biography, any event in Scripture suddenly just becomes all about him, all about God. It is his story. And um, this way of reading Scripture really influences the way we live our lives. Now, um, what we see in uh, the course of the biblical story is that man has ever sought to hijack God's story. In other words, what originally was all about God becomes all about man. And we're going to look at a couple of episodes where that happened, and then we're going to try to see if, if perhaps that is happening in our lives as well. And the first episode of this, you go back to the book of Genesis, turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. This is, of course, probably the, um, um, the most well-known um, moment that this takes place, the fall itself. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, um, God had commanded that they could eat of every tree in the garden except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this was the test, right, in the Garden of Eden. Now, look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. The enemy, in the form of a serpent, speaks lies to Eve in order to get her to eat of the fruit. And one of those lies, the third lie, basically, that we want to look at here is... In verse 5, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, and he says the following, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, that is, you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The moment you eat of the fruit, you will be like God, implying also that that's not something that God wants. God does not want you to be like him. And... Uh, and, and that's why, you know, he knows that if you eat of this fruit, then you're going to be like him. And so, and, and this is the temptation. Now, what do they do? Mankind wanted what God had. They no longer wanted to reflect the glory, but they wanted to receive the glory. History was no longer his story, but now they made it their own story. And, and what happened here when they ate of the fruit is they hijacked the story of God. They said, yeah, we want to be like God. We want it to be all about us. We don't want to be reflecting the image of God. We don't want to be reflecting the glory of God. We want the glory of God for ourselves. And this is how the story continues. Mankind hijacked God's story. Now, we also see this very clearly in the Jewish nation. When Jesus came to this earth, which, by the way, was the response to this great problem, God looks down, he says, and, and, and mankind has hijacked the story. And what does he do in response? He steps into the story. He becomes man, right? Incarnated, walks among us. 
And, 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 and what is he doing as he's walking among us? He's really uh, showing the life that each one of us should live. Because when he came to the end of his life, when Jesus came to the end of his life, he summed it up in John chapter 17 and verse 4. And he says this, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What was the work that he had to do? Give glory to God. He says, I have glorified you on this earth. I have finished the work. So that was a work, obviously, that mankind had negated, neglected, as they had been seeking the glory to themselves. Now, um, you see this very clearly with the Jewish nation because the Jews, um, they, we know, we read the gospel story, we know that the Jews, they rejected Jesus and they ultimately crucified him. They were anticipating the coming of a Messiah, but the problem was that they had made the story all about themselves. In other words, the story was about the glory of the Jewish nation. The Messiah was all about setting them free from their oppressors, making them rich and glorious, making them the head of all nations, and this was their story. So that when Jesus came along, they didn't see in him the promise of the Messiah. They didn't see in him the fulfillment of Scripture. Now, um, there's an instance where this comes through very strongly. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John, the fourth gospel book, chapter 5, as we see how God's story was hijacked by the Jews. They could not see in Jesus the fulfillment of history, the fulfillment of prophecy, the fulfillment of God's story. And um, Jesus himself speaks to the Jews and he gives them a fourfold witness. In other words, he gives them four reasons why he is indeed the culmination of the story, why he is indeed the fulfillment of the prophecies. Take notice of these four things that he mentions to the Jews here in John 5. And I'll pick it up in verse 32. He says, there is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to, uh, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yes, I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Now, what is he doing here? He's referring to John. John the Baptist, remember, pointed to Jesus as the fulfillment of prophecy, the, the, the coming Messiah. He said, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. So Jesus is saying, okay, the story of Scripture is about me because remember what John said. Remember what John the Baptist said. He pointed to me. Then he gives them a second reason, verse 36. Look at this. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the father has sent me. So Jesus is saying, okay, you have John the Baptist that pointed to me, but then I have even a greater witness. And that is the very works that I do, the miracles that he performed, his teachings, his life itself was a witness. And then there's another witness, a third witness. If you look at verse 37, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So the Father testifies of him, God the Father. And then he comes with a fourth witness, verse 39. Look at this. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which do what? What do the scriptures do? They testify of Jesus. So look, so look at this. Jesus says, okay, I'm the promised one. I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of God's story. Jesus himself is history. He is his story in flesh. And, and Jesus says, this is the reason why. John the Baptist pointed to me. Uh, the fa uh, the, uh, John the Baptist points to me. My very works, the very life is a testimony. The Father himself testifies of me. He sent me. And then the scriptures testify of me. 
Now, now, especially um, the fourth point, that the scriptures testify of Jesus, this was something that the Pharisees had a very hard time with. Because they did not openly reject the scriptures. As a matter of fact, the scriptures were very important for the Jews. Yet they could not see the fulfillment of Jesus in the scriptures. In opposition and rejection towards Jesus, they would use Moses. Isn't that interesting? They would say, we are disciples of Moses. We follow Moses. We, 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 we believe in Moses. We don't follow you. We don't believe you. We, we are disciples of Moses. Interesting. The whole point of Moses was to do what? To point forward to, to Jesus. Right? The whole writings of Moses, all the other prophets in the Old Testament, they were all to point forward to the coming of Jesus. Remember, it's all about the glory of God, the story of God, and the story of God became flesh in the life of Christ. So it was all to point forward. You know, very interesting. I, I found this um, um, saying of a rabbi in the first century, um, a rabbi by the name of Hillel. Uh, in the first century BC, he's reported to have said the following. One who has required unto himself the words of Torah, and Torah are the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. One who has required unto himself the words of Torah has, has acquired for himself the life of the world to come. So the rabbinical way of thinking was if you have the Torah, you have the words of life. And then Jesus says these, you know, revolutionary Words, he says, you search the scriptures, they, and, and in them you think you have eternal life. That was the thinking. In the scriptures is eternal life. And then Jesus says, you have the scriptures, you think you have eternal life? And then he adds to it, these are they which testify of me. So Christ is saying, you think you find life in the scriptures. You think you find your story in the scriptures. But actually, it's not your story it's my story. Isn't that power? It's amazing. It's powerful. It's beautiful because what does that do? It basically frees us in amazing ways because whenever we make the story about us, you know, we get disappointed. The Jews, they were in for a major disappointment because they believed that the story was all about them, all about the glory of Israel, all about the reestablishment of Israel, all about the coming Messiah that would set them free from all earthly powers that would put them on the pinnacle of glory. They believed that it was all about the nation of Israel. And then Jesus comes and he says, <laughs> the scriptures, it's not about you. It's not about your glory. It's about me. And those that put their faith in Christ, those that said, hey, wait a minute, it's not about our story, it's about his story. Whoever did that became a, a real disciple of Jesus. You see, when you think about it, all the misery that we go through in our lives is because we make God's story our story. We make, we make it about us. We put the focus and attention on us. We lose sight that it's really all about him. You know, Christians will say, you know, God loves me. And it's true. He will, they will say, he came down for me. He died for me. He rose for me. He is building a mansion in heaven for me. You know, young kids, they learn the song, you know, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And this is all true, right? I mean, I'm not up here to say that God doesn't love you, but there's something more important that we oftentimes overlook and that we miss. And that is that in the end, salvation for us is really only a byproduct. God's glory is the story, right? I mean, that, that, that we are... are taken into this story of God and that, and that we are in the process of his story are saved is something very beautiful and wonderful and God does love you and God did come for you and God is building a mansion for you and he will come again for you but the danger is that when you focus so much about the story being on you that you sometimes miss out that the story is really about him. Amen? It is God's story. And uh, the, the Israelites, the, the, the Jews, in the days of Jesus, they fell into the trap 
of making the story about them. And in doing so, they missed the Messiah. They missed the fulfillment of Scripture. Now, it's interesting, if you're still in John chapter 5, I want you to take notice of um, the last verses in that chapter. Um, look at verse 46 and 47. Look at what Jesus says after they have said, you know, we, you know, obviously they, 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 they want Moses more than Jesus. And Jesus says the following about Moses. He says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? <laughs> Jesus says, if you really believed in Moses, you would believe in me. So Moses points to Jesus. Every prophet in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ, right? It's all the, it's all the prophecy and the, and, and the types that are pointing to the antitype, the coming of Christ, now, um, this problem that existed in the days of Jesus also existed later in, that, in the first century because Paul addresses the same issue. And Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going to read this verse for you, and you, you can follow along in your Bibles if you would like, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And Paul really puts the problem here in a nutshell. He describes the problem of the first century Jews. And listen to what he says. He says, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even till this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. So whenever they are reading, what are they reading? Moses, 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 Moses. And they don't see Jesus. And Moses was pointing to Jesus, but, they, what, but what, what was to point to Jesus became the very thing that blinded them from seeing Jesus, a misapplication of Scripture. And why? Because they had taken God's story and they had hijacked God's story and made it their own story. And so they failed to see Jesus in Scripture. Now, um, the, <laughs> the kind of ironical thing about it is really that if there's one story in scripture that illustrates probably more than any other story in scripture about what it means to enter into God's story, it's the story of Moses. I mean, if they really understood the story of Moses, they would see that, that the example of Moses and what he went through was really an example of what we all have to do, and that is to step into God's story. And so with the remaining of our time together this evening, I want to take a look at how Moses stepped into God's story. And it is a, a, a perfect um, illustrative story of what you and I need to do in order to really enter into God's story and make it all about him and give him glory, as that is the, 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 the whole essence of our existence. So uh, turn with me to the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 3, and uh, let's look at the calling of Moses. Exodus uh, chapter 3, and uh, I'm going to begin in verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, you know the story, and um, Moses, you know, the name Moses means the one that was drawn out, and he was drawn out of the water. Uh, and uh, his mother, in order to save his life, put him in the basket. He was drawn out. He was raised in the court of the Pharaoh, and uh, he believed that he was going to be the deliverer of the people, and so he, he thought that the story was about him. He was the deliverer, and so when he saw that one Hebrew was being beaten up by an Egyptian taskmaster, it, it arose in him the moment that, yeah, here, I'm going to now deliver God's people, and so he slew the Egyptian, and uh, when uh, Pharaoh found out, his life was in danger, was threatened. And so he had to flee to the wilderness where he became a shepherd for 40 years. Kind of a re-education program was taking place. <laughs> for 40 years in, in Egypt, he thought that it was about him. It was his story. He was the deliverer. And now he acts upon this this. this reality that, that he believes is a reality, that it's all about him, and he's going to set them free, and he's going to act, and he's going to kill. 
and then suddenly he ends up being a shepherd. I mean, <laughs> leading sheep for 40 years. You know, the life of Moses can be divided into three times 40. You know, he died when he was 120. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the Egypt as a, uh, 40 years in the, in the wilderness as a shepherd, 40 years leading the people of God in the wilderness. And you can ask yourself the question, which, which was hardest and which was the most easy? I think his life just got harder and harder. But here he is in the wilderness for 40 years. And then all, believing that it was all about him, he was the deliverer, it was his story. And then God comes and speaks to him. And look at this, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horab, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was not burning with the fire, but the bush was not, uh, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Verse 3. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the Lord I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land, uh, that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Pesicites and the Hevites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Now, up till now, I just want you for a moment to place yourself what it must have been like for Moses. I mean, for 40 years, he's been leading sheep. He knows the oppressions of his people. He's seen it with his own eyes. He tried to do something about it. Didn't go very well. For 40 years, he's in the wilderness, probably thinking every single day about his people. Probably thinking every day, what's going to happen to them? And then... One day, as he's leading the sheep, he he sees this bush burning. And in curiosity, as he makes his way to the bush, God speaks from that bush. And as God speaks to Moses, God is revealing his own utter, utter love and concern for his people. God is saying, I know the sorrow. I have heard the cry. I see the affliction. I've heard the people. And also God is saying, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to set them free. I'm going to bring them to a land. And then he, and he mentions the land where there are all these great, you know, giants, these enemies. But, but God is saying, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. And I'm going to bring them to this land. And I'm going to give them this land. God is actually saying here, this is my story. And this is my people. And I made them for my glory. And I raised them up to be a witness of me, to reflect my glory. And this is what I'm going to do. God is not coming to Moses to ask his, his advice about this. Moses, what do you think? Do you think I should deliver my people? Do you think it's been long enough? Do you think I can do it? Do you think I have the power to set them free? You know, God is not asking the advice of Moses. Neither, what he's doing is he's telling Moses what he's going to do. He says, I'm going, I've heard their cry. I'm going to set them free. And this is exactly what I'm going to, I'm going to bring them to the promised land. And I can imagine, just to place yourself for a moment uh, in the life of Moses. Moses is probably thinking, this is awesome. I mean, this is great. I mean, God, you want to do that? Go ahead, do it. I mean, uh, Moses believes that, yeah, God is capable of doing this. But look at what it says in the next verse. 
just when Moses is probably getting his hopes up because God has seen the problem, God is going to act upon the problem, God is speaking in the first pronoun, all the verses that we read so far. I have seen, I have heard, I will do, I am going to do this, I will do that. But then in verse 10, listen, listen to this. Come now, therefore, God speaking to Moses, come now, therefore, and I will send, and now it changes, you. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, isn't this incredible? This is, this is just the amazement of Scripture. It's God's story. It's God that is going to do it. It's God that is omniscient and an almighty and all-powerful. And yet, in this amazing godness, he invites frail humanity into his story. I mean, it wasn't Moses' story. He had no plan of delivering the people. Uh, He tried once when it was his story, and it went very wrong. And now God, in his mercy, is saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is my story. Just the way he introduces himself, I'm the God of Abram, Isaac, Jacob. In other words, Moses, I was around before you were around. You know, God has always been and will always be. He is eternal. It's something that our minds cannot really grasp. If you think, of it, if you think about eternity too long, <laughs> it kind of drives you crazy. God has always been and always will be. And, and, and God has a story, and history is his story. And in his mercy, and he is sovereign over everything, I mean, the sovereignty of God is on every page of the Bible. He is sovereign. It's his story. He's he's not asking Moses the advice of what he should do. He's telling Moses what he's going to do, and he did it. And history is right here. We have the account of how he did it. But then in his mercy, God invites frail, weak Moses to enter into his story and to be part of this. Now, the difference now is that Moses is becoming part of God's story. Forty years before, Moses tried to make God part of his story, Moses' story. It didn't work. And too many times, we in our Christian lives, we try to make God part of our story. God, we dictate what he must do because we believe it's about us. And yet, (laughs) the paradigm shift that I believe is on every page of the Bible The key to live with God is to enter into his story and to realize on the deepest level that we can that it's all about him. It's his glory. It's all about him. And we, frail as we are, get to take part in this. I mean, it is mind-boggling that God would even consider us as part of his great grand story. Now, Moses feels incapable And he says in verse 11, look at this. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You know, later in the story, he says that he can't speak well. And uh, in verse 12, listen, listen to what God says. So he said, God says, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. Listen to this. You shall serve God on this mountain. So God is saying, okay, this is what is going to happen. He gives the exact plan. Moses said, hey, I'm not capable. And then God says, you will serve me on this mountain. Now, Now, just keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that in a moment. This mountain. Okay. They would, they would come back to that mountain. That's exactly what happened, by the way. They did come to that mountain. But we'll, we're going we're gonna to speak about that in just a moment. But look at verse 14. This is amazing. Verse 13, rather. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And I remember reading this for the first time uh, as a Christian. You know, I'm, okay, I'm going I'm to read the Bible. And I come to the story of Moses, and, and you read this. And has anyone of you thought that this was kind of an awkward way that God introduced himself? His name? Look at this, verse 14. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now again, place yourself in the life of Moses. His afternoon is interrupted by a burning bush. God speaks to him that he needs to go back to Egypt. He doesn't feel capable. He's kind of stuttering. He doesn't know how to speak. And so he has Aaron with him. Now just imagine what the scene must be like when they come to Egypt. Moses can't really talk. And Aaron has to do it for him. And then Aaron says, I am has sent us. And he has a message Set the Hebrews free today. What is Pharaoh going to think? I mean, what, what's in this name that obviously we haven't understood? Because when I read it, I'm like, well, what does it mean that, that God says, introduce me as I am? And it gets, even, it gets even more forceful than this. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 15. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. So the name of God, being I am, is something that would last forever. This was to be his name forever. For all generations. Now, the name I am is actually comes from the word haya, which means to be. So kind of the essence of everything. God is, in, God is in center. He's in control. He always has been. There is no change in God. There's no variation in God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, this means that, that he will always be. He's ever existing. He's never changing. There are no variation with him this is god i am i am now think about this if god is i am then what are we if god is i am then we are i am not right if god is i am (laughs) then we are I am not. You see, there are two things that we ever have to keep in our minds when God invites us into something extraordinary. And these are the two things that we must remember. Who is doing the inviting and who is being invited, right? If there are two things that we ever must remember when it comes to the story of God, his story, the scriptures, who's doing the inviting, who is being invited? God is doing the inviting. I am the essence of everything, omniscient, omnipresent, almighty, all-knowing. Words fail to communicate the power and mighty and awesomeness of God. Words fail to communicate it. God does the inviting. We are invited into it. Frail human beings, weak, unable, incapable. We are invited into God's story. I am. I mean, I, I was thinking about, you know, this, um, this name of God. Isn't it kind of, listen, isn't it kind of the answer to all of our problems? I am. I'm not capable. God answers, I am. Who can forgive me of all the sins that haunt my life? God answers, I am. Who can mend the brokenness of my life? I am. Who can give me hope for the future? I am. Who will never leave me or forsake me? I am. I need a bigger story. I am. Amen? I mean, God himself is I am. And in being I am, the essence of everything, the story of everything, the glory of everything, is inviting you, frail you, frail us, I am not, into the story of I am. And, and this is amazing when you look at the story of Moses, the very one that later, sadly, uh, later the, 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 the Jews used Moses as an excuse not to follow Jesus, while the very story and calling of, Je- of Moses is the very example for not only the Jews, but for every single one of us, of what it means to enter into God's story. And Moses did enter into the story, and um, he did come back to that mountain. Remember the mountain? God says, you will come back and serve me on this mountain, and he came back and served God on that mountain. 
The sad thing that happened, though, when they came back to that mountain is that when God went up on that mountain, uh, when Moses went up on the mountain to spend 40 days with God, while he was in the story of God, the Jews down on the base of that mountain, at the foot of that mountain, hijacked God's story. And they made a golden calf and they ascribed the glory of their deliverance to a golden calf. In other words, they gave glory to an object, a, craved, a carved image, rather than to the almighty, omniscient, and all-powerful creator God. They hijacked the story. And as they hijacked the story, it became all about them. It became about their appetite in the wilderness. <laughs> it became about their comfort. It became about their lives, and they perished. A whole generation perished in the wilderness. And I'm asking myself the question, what is it going to take for a generation of Adventism, Adventists today to enter into the promised land? What is it going to take? I believe it's going to take that we realize as a people that it's not our story. It's God's story. And every single thing that God has ever prophesied in prophecy, is going to happen whether we do it or not. If we don't do it, God will find someone else to do it. It will happen. I mean, prophecy is not some assumption or good idea or it's not some motivational speech for you and I to get our act together like, oh, God says this needs to happen, so I better make this happen. No, you can't make it happen because it's not your story. It's God's story. The only thing that we can do is say, okay, God, if this is your story (laughs) and you're asking me to be part of it, I feel frail, I feel weak, I feel incapable, but I'm going to step into your story and I'm going to to trust that you, through me, can, 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 can make this happen. I mean, it's not, you, it's not me, it's you, but, but you can do this through me. I, I want to be part of your story. This is what Moses did. He stepped into God's story, and it happened exactly the way that God said it would happen. We have prophecy, and these prophecies tell us exactly what is going to happen. But it is up to each one of us to be willing to step into God's story. Again, I want to reiterate this that we started with. Um, Everything in the scriptures is about him. And this is not some cliche because sometimes we say this. Yeah, we know that. (laughs) We've heard that. Of course, it's all about God. No, it's all about him. I mean, it is all about him. Every page is about him. It's his glory. And and too often we try to make it our story. Even within Adventism, we, we, we make it our story. It's not. It's God's story. The only thing we can do is, is like Moses, say, okay, I'm weak, I'm frail, I'm incapable. I'm sure you had other people that could do a better job than me, but I'm willing to die to self, to die to my own story and step into yours. You see, that is, that is a glorious death. The death to self is the, is, the, is the most glorious death. Because what happens when you die to self is you're saying to God, okay, I thought it was all about me, but I found out it's all about you. And... By dying to self, I'm saying, okay, no longer my story. God, your story in me. And that is when we discover true happiness in life. Because it's really a miserable existence when it's all about us. You know how miserable it is to think that everything revolves around you? And, and why did that person speak to me at my job like that? Don't they know who they're talking to? It's all about me. Uh, You might not say it that way, but subconsciously you're thinking it's all about me. That person did not speak in a respectful way to me. In traffic, that person cut me off. In church, why is that person speaking up front? Why am I not speaking up front? That, why, why is this person here and I'm not here? When the story becomes about us, it's miserable because we can never never really live up to this kind of standard that we've set for ourselves because the glory, we always want more and more and more. And this was the problem with Lucifer. And, and the only solution is to say, glorious death. God, I'm going to end my story because it's not about me. And from now on, I'm going to step into your story. You have this amazing thing going on, much better than I could have ever, ever put together. I mean, it's going to happen what you said is going to happen. 
I'm going to step into that. I'm going to be part of what you are already doing in the universe and in this world. And my friends, that is the most exciting thing that you can ever do. You know, um, you know how, how Facebook works, you know. You, you look at the lives, kind of a, an entrance, a little window into someone's life. And, you know, um, when I decided to follow Christ and I got baptized 13 years ago and my life has never been the same since. And, and yet, uh, through Facebook, I've been able to connect a little bit with old friends of mine, high school friends that I used to hang out with before I was a Christian. And, you know, you get little glimpses into their lives when they post a picture or you know, make a comment, been to this party and done this and watched this movie and, you know. And the things that, that, that kind of give an entrance, a little portrayal of their lives is, is really the thing that, you know, I was doing like years ago when I was with them. And I think to myself, you know, for them, life has not changed. It's still about their story. It's their story. It's their job that they wake up in the morning to go to. It's their entertainment that they find pleasure in. And, and it's the same things over and over again. You know, the same you know, drink, the same sport, the same entertainment, the same places where they go, the same things that they do. And it's all about their story. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, God, thank you so much. Thank you so much that in your mercy that you pulled me out of that. And that you invited me into something that I could have never dreamed about, never thought about, never comprehended. That you actually invited me into your story that is much grander and much greater than anything I could have ever dreamed of. And I mean, that is a life worth living, amen? And you are invited into that. You can be part of that when you make it his story. I want to close with a word of prayer and but before i close um and we're going to further develop this in the course of our series on sabbath as we look at the second part of this but i want to appeal that as you as you read scripture as you spend time with god in prayer that you ask him to show you his story because when he shows that to you and ask him to show you his glory, because when, when this becomes our all-absorbing focus, you know, when this, when this really becomes the, the trajectory of our life, life becomes so much more meaningful. We start finding the purpose of our existence to give glory to God. And there are so many areas in which this plays out. It can play out very differently in each of our lives. There's no set form of how this works. What does it mean to give glory to God? It means that the story is about him. And and, and when you find your place in God's story, God will reveal to you how that plays out in every instance of your life. But we all have a calling, just like Moses had a calling. We all have a calling. We all have a place. The Spirit of Prophecy says, just as much as Christ is preparing a mansion for you in heaven, just as much as he's preparing a place for you in heaven, so he has a place for you on this earth. Isn't that encouraging? I pray that you will find that place. Don't hijack the story of God, but let God invite you in, enter into his story. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for scripture. We thank you that History is his story. It's your story. And um, Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign over everything, that you have set up kings and taken them down, that you are sovereign over all things that have happened in the past and that are happening in our lives right now. And that, Lord, you have already declared what is going to happen in the future and that it will happen because it's your story. How can it not happen? And Lord, we are merely invited in, invited to be part of this, of what you already are doing. Lord, help us not to hijack your story. Help us not to believe that the world is revolving around us or Adventism is revolving around us. Help us not to fall into the trap that we are somehow special and must make it happen. And Lord, help us rather, like Moses, weak, stuttering, incapable. Help us believe and trust in you, the great I am. Lord, we freely, humbly pray this evening, realizing that we are not, I am not, but you are. 
Father, help us to die that death every day, the death to self. It's the most hardest thing, and yet it's the most beautiful thing. And I pray, Lord, that as we are crucified to self, that as we're crucified, Lord, to all the sin that so seeks to strive the supremacy in our lives, when it is put to death, I pray that you may be seen through us and in us. I pray that what we do here this week may be part of your story. And thank you that we're invited to take our part. And we want to do so faithfully. And so, Lord, we thank you for everything. We thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, that he has come to set us free from our own story and invite us into a much greater, grander, and meaningful story. Lord, we thank you for all the suffering that your son went through on our behalf. We thank you that he indeed rose from the grave and that he is alive and that he listens even to our prayers right now. It's amazing. Thank you that you are alive. Thank you that you know us and that you want us to know you. Help us, Lord, not to just know about you, but to actually know you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.